0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, May the 12th, 2020. It's episode 2658, and we're calling it House Hunters in a Buyer's Market. Um, I have been getting a tremendous amount of questions about real estate lately. I've been getting it from the standard emails that we get, a little bit on the blog. The blog comment section is nothing like it was back in the day, as they say, right? Um, Facebook um, has become the major place that TSP members communicate, and I just think it's because... It's one website, and everything's there. Um, and, you know, Facebook has a dominance, whether we like it or not. Uh, so most of the discussion happens with me on my personal page on Facebook uh, or the Survival Podcast Facebook forum group, which is a great group. And, by the way, it's private. It um, doesn't mean that Facebook doesn't see anything that's going on, far from it, but it does mean that we're pretty much left alone and nobody bothers us and and your, your neighbor's not going to see what you post there. So, um that's just where the discussion is. And I've been getting a ton of questions through Facebook. And I've been getting quite a few, actually, through Instagram. And uh, oddly enough, because there's hardly any video content, a question or two has come through on uh, on YouTube in comments about real estate lately. So I know there's an interest in it. And I, I think it's pretty obvious why. People are sitting back and saying, hey, this current economy where we have, like, freaking." of the country or something like that unemployed Um, if you look at real unemployment versus the official number uh, you know 20 odd million people that were working 3 months ago not working now this has to be a buyer's market for real estate it isn't yet and I do say yet And, and the reason that I say yet is and I'm not saying there's not deals we're going to talk about that in a second too. there's always deals but I have been looking because I am actually trying to encourage people to move to be my neighbors uh, there's actually quite a few really nice houses for sale around me right now, some quite nicer than my own, um, but it's clear the sellers are not yet in touch with the economic reality, and and one of them, for instance, is uh, I believe it's about $80,000 overpriced, and it's been on the market for six months, which makes it a great house to go after. You know, just because it's overpriced, does, that's actually a great thing, and we'll, we'll talk about more about that today, but... I, I've just been paying attention to everything that goes up for sale around me. And that's always a good idea, by the way, guys, because someday you may want to sell. We're going to talk about buying with the exit strategy in mind today as well. So it's always good to know what's selling, how fast, for how much, so that you know if I need to get out of here, if I need to jump, what can I get for my place and get it, get it moved in two weeks. If a house doesn't sell in two weeks, it's not the end of the world, but you're never going to have a house that really does well for you. If it takes more than two to three weeks to get your first good solid offer. I have never taken, this is an honest to God statement of truth, more than ten days to get an offer worthy of consideration on a property I've sold. I've sold in up markets, I've sold in down markets. I have sold every property that I have ever sold at or above my asking price. And I have closed on that property within 45 days of listing the property. Every single time. Because even when I'm buying, I'm buying with not the intent to sell, but with the option to sell in mind. Based on what I'm going to do with the property, what I'm going to use the property for, how I'm going to improve the property, and knowing that I want within two years of being in that property to be able to walk out of that property with money in my hand. I don't want to be able to break even. I want to walk out with, with a block of money that I can apply to another place, even if the market sucks. And buying is a big part of that. The problem right now is, and it's not a problem because it's stabilized the economy, the government's doled out so much money, most people, not all people, most people that aren't working are getting uh, either the same amount of money or a little bit more money in unemployment plus federal matching, et cetera, than they would if they had a job, most. The people that aren't are wealthy people, who can handle a momentary lapse in income, or they haven't had a lapse in income. Okay, so your, your houses that are owned by people that you would call affluent, generally they're not yet distressed, unless that person for some reason needs to sell, which is a key thing you're looking for when you're a buyer. But I don't think, no matter how quickly COVID goes away, that when we turn this economy back on, no matter how fast we can go, that you can just come back from this. We will come back from this, but you can't just come back from this. You understand the difference? And so there's going to be this long, protracted recovery. Best case scenario, it's 18 months. That's the best case scenario to get back to where we were. More likely two to two and a half years to get back to where we were economically if everything goes fairly well. Could take longer. Now... Understand where we were six years ago wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. We could be back to that pretty quickly. But what we end up with is this period in time where you have difficulty for some to obtain financing, inability or unwillingness for many to obtain financing, and a shortage of buyers. Now, a shortage of buyers doesn't quite equal a surplus of sellers yet. But in time, those two things eventually collide and you end up in a true buyer's market. So it is a much better time to buy a house right now than it was 20 months ago. It ain't that great yet. But it's coming, and the deals are already starting to show up, and you've got to know how to negotiate, and you've got to know how to find the right property so that you're in the strong position as the buyer. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So these deals are coming. You're right for thinking this way. And I'm going to talk to you about how to find them today and how to find two things. The right deal and the right property for you. And I'm also going to focus more on, I wouldn't say conventional property, because one of my bullet points today, of course, is HOAs are the devil. So not necessarily subdivisions in the way that we think of them. Little houses, little boxes on the hillside, little boxes, like where everybody's stacked up on top of each other's ass. But we're talking, you know, nice size, half acre, two, eight, two, two let's say two acre lots. Um Generally, right around one acre is where you can still get a pretty good deal on a property without paying too much for the land. And that's a lot of land for a small-time homesteader. It's a lot more land than you think it is, especially if it lays right. So we're talking about kind of like if you go to Realtor and drop in a zip code and start pulling up properties and look for like, let's say, third acre and larger lots, that's kind of the house that we're going to be talking about today. Not your bug-out location, not your big country estate uh, not your farm and ranch. Though everything I'm going to say today applies to that, I know that that's what most people are going to buy, so that's kind of the mindset that I'm coming at this with. Before we get to that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is ButcherBox.com. I would tell you to go sign up for ButcherBox right now, but guess what? You can't. You can't become a customer of ButcherBox right now because they're not taking new customers because COVID and a meat shortage. But what they are doing is taking people on a waiting list. Get on the waiting list now so that when it opens up, you're one of the first people to be able to get on board. I have heard so many thank yous from people who are ButcherBox customers during this time. And everybody that's a customer has been getting exactly what they're supposed to get. And the reason for that is ButcherBox stopped taking customers to take care of their existing customers first. They're the only sponsor I have that pays me in product. I get a great big box of meat every month. Uh, you can, too, if you're already a customer. Or, you know, you can uh, get on that waiting list right now. And once you're on that waiting list, as soon as they open back up, you can be first in line to get on board. Next up today, you don't have to do any waiting at all if you want to become a subscriber to Backwoods Home. Backwoods Home Magazine is a big part of my foundational knowledge. See, I've been reading Backwoods Home Magazine since 1993 when I first got out of the Army. And I've been a subscriber ever since. If you check them out today, you'll find out why. Check them out today at BackwoodsHome.com. And with that, let's talk about a... Uh, quote of the day now the guy I'm quoting today Robert G. Allen is kind of a quick money uh, guy and one of the things he sells you on is you know, investing in real estate uh, he has stuff kind of marketed in that genre but I, you know, when some, just because somebody does that doesn't mean they're wrong sometimes you maybe shouldn't fully trust them but it doesn't mean they're wrong um, they make more money selling information than they'll ever make doing the thing that they're selling information about generally uh, so I just want to be clear I'm not putting Robert G. Allen down, but I'm also not saying go buy his How to Become a Millionaire in Real Estate course when I, when I give you his quote. But his quote is very accurate from a standpoint of if you want to build wealth in your life, that you need to figure out the smart way. And the problem I have with these kind of like real estate courses and all, that you so hyped up on buying real estate, you will make bad deals because you become emotionally invested, which breaks one of my rules. But that doesn't make this quote in any way inaccurate. Don't wait to buy real estate. Buy real estate and wait. Real estate in general is an appreciating asset. You have to pay to live somewhere anyway. If you find the right deal and buy real estate and wait, you will inevitably come out ahead unless you end up being one of the people we're going to talk about looking for today. Someone who needs to sell when it's not a good time to sell. And if you add to that someone who bought stupid, you can end up in a really bad place. But if you buy smart within your budget, and and the way I look at it is if I can get into a house and it's not going to cost me any more money in the total cost of monthly payment for that house, and that includes things I wouldn't pay for but now have to pay for as a homeowner. But if I can match rent with that or go below rent with that, then I am much better off with equity building. And holding on to equity that builds through appreciation, even through downturns, etc., But I want to buy smart. That means not paying top dollar at the top of a market. But in general, the advice there, don't wait to buy real estate. Buy real estate and wait is great advice. Let's kind of dig into it with that. Let's start off with, um, it occurred to me that I never really have gone through the different mortgage options. And I'm going to go through them very quickly here today because I don't think it's as important as people make it out to be. What you do is you see, this is the short, short version of choosing your method of financing. Figure out what's available to you and figure out what makes the most financial sense for you and do that. That's it. So if it makes sense for you to go conventional because you have the money for the down payment to put the down payment down and get out of paying primary mortgage insurance, if that the numbers work out to where that makes sense for you to do that and you don't put yourself out and go you know to having almost no savings by doing a conventional 20% down loan, then, then you do that. If you're better off doing an FHA or VA loan with no or low down payment, then you do that. So let's go through them. FHA is going to be the way that the majority of people buy a home, especially in the kind of tier of market we're talking about today. And that is the government loan program, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac type thing. Um, Generally, the terms of those loans, now there's special deals and all, generally the term of that loan is 3% of the purchase price down, Plus closing costs. Sometimes you can finance some of the closing costs. Sometimes you get the buyer to pay. But in general, that's what that means. It's one of the lowest cost options, out-of-pocket money, to buy a home. And it's why so many people do it. And it is kind of the place that the, the, the skids have been the most greased to get the most people in the door and approved without getting into what you would call a toxic or a bad loan with a ridiculous interest rate. Okay? Okay. Um, it is probably the best option for you to start with and at least know, do I qualify? And if I qualify, what do the numbers look like? Because then you can compare everything else to that, which is probably best for the most, not all people. Then there's a VA loan. If you are a veteran, you can do a VA loan, and you can basically do a mortgage with a dollar down. So you can do almost no out-of-pocket costs whatsoever and get into a house and just basically you know when the first payment comes you make the payment and you're in your house and you don't have any out of pocket costs this can be a tremendous advantage it can also put you in a tremendous disadvantage because what it allows you to do is finance more than the home is worth in many instances so if the let's say the home appraises for 150 you buy it for 1495 and you throw all the closing costs on top of that and you end up paying uh, you know the real cost of that home ends up being $162,000 you can be upside down from day one um Now that's a little bit difficult to do because um, none of the banks or, or the VA themselves want to get into an upside down loan with you. So they, they generally push back somewhat on the, on the sale price to compensate for that. But you can definitely end up with a home that appraises a little more aggressively and therefore the numbers look good. So you got to be careful that you're not going to negative equity. When you go with a zero-down loan, nothing out of pocket because it, it, it can happen. And the same thing can be said of hybrid loans like an eighty twenty loan, which is where you have two separate mortgages. And we finance 80% of the mortgage on a standard, let's say, 30-year fixed and and 20% of the mortgage on something like a variable rate 10-year. I'm not a fan of that. It can work because the variable rate is on a much smaller portion of the, of the loan. It will get you out of what's called PMI. We'll talk about that in a second for how you make decisions in relation to PMI. Um, but I, I don't feel good about it. If, if you know enough to do that loan in spite of the fact that I don't feel good about it, that's okay. If someone's talking you into that loan because they're a real estate agent and they want to get the most money out of your pocket into a home so they can sell you a home, you probably need to become more educated about that loan and make a decision independent of anything that a real estate agent tells you. Let me let me kind of I, I have a point in the whole presentation today about real estate agents generally being morons. And and they generally are. Many people there are great real estate agents. Before I go any further, there are great, fantastic real estate agents, I know some of them. I have some in this audience, I'm not offending you because if you're a good real estate agent you know most of your contemporaries are idiots there are a lot of people that are real estate agents because they literally failed at everything else and they fell into it as something they could do there are a lot of agents that will be great agents someday but they're very new and they don't know what the F they're doing yet and it's one thing to take their advice about the market do not take a real estate agent's advice about the economic side of the equation you take a person who is an expert in loans advice on that this is richest, richest Man in Babylon 101. My buddy who thinks that gold's a good investment, if he's not spent his life as a gold investor, I don't have any interest in his advice on gold. He can be the greatest mechanic in the world and know everything about cars, and I will take his advice about cars, but I am not taking his advice about investing in gold. I am not taking a real estate agent's advice about how to finance a property, unless when I have a conversation with that real estate agent, it turns out they're a landlord and they have 12, 12 income properties. Well, now we're having a totally different... We're going to a deep conversation now about so many other things. Most real estate agents, if they don't own their own home and they're renting while they're a real estate agent, you really don't want their advice. Okay? If they're driving a hoopty and they're a real estate... You really don't want their advice about money. People that don't do well with money don't take their advice on money. So if you want to look at the hybrid loan option, you go ahead and you do it, but you understand it fully and what it means. Um... Conventional. Conventional loans are generally a twenty percent down loan. And this is the loan that pretty much your grandma got, right? And your great grandma got. You want to buy a property, it's hundred thousand dollars, you need twenty grand to put down. That tells the bank this person is financially responsible, they know what they're getting into, and they're willing to put some serious skin in the game. Therefore, we do not need to have a product called primary mortgage insurance. Primary mortgage insurance is a scam. It is not really going to help you in any way, but you're paying for it, and it wasn't. it's not really going to help the lender directly if you default. It doesn't actually insure you. It's a pool of money used to mitigate the totality of risk, okay? Um, it is a scam. It was put in place to be a scam, and it just basically increases the cost of your mortgage. It is very difficult to get out from under once you're into a mortgage without a full refinance. So... You, can, you you can And your real estate agents will tell you stupid shit like, well, when your property goes up in value, you can just apply to get out of PMI, and your mortgage lender will have to let you out of it if you're a property appra. No, they don't. And that hasn't been the case for a very long time, and that's one reason I say don't take advice about financing from real estate agents. Again, you're, you're a real estate agent with 10 income properties? Yeah, yeah, we're going to talk. Now, I'm going to make sure you're not an idiot in how you got yourself into that, but, yeah, we're, you might know something about that. But if all you do is sell houses, all you know how to do is get me approved, get me in a house, and go on to the next deal. Which, to be fair, is your job. But you're not pulling that shit with me. all right? So that's how this all works out. Now, I've bought houses both with conventional, actually all three. I've done conventional VA and FHA. When I bought the property in Arkansas, because the, the, the payment was so low and the down payment was so low, And PMI was relatively high in a ratio to the two. It made sense for me to just put 20% down on the property and eliminate PMI. It took me about four and a half years of making payments to where every payment after that, I was ahead by not having PMI. When we bought our property that we had when I started doing this show in Arlington, Texas, I did the math and it would have took me 14 and a half years. 14 and a half years before I would have broke even, so I did a 3% down um, FHA loan. When I bought my property in Pennsylvania, the property was pushed down, and we got such a good deal. It was so below its actual market value, i.e., I paid about 130000 for a property that was appraising at one hundred and sixty because of the TURD formula, which is the reverse 1% formula we'll talk about in a minute, and knowing how to negotiate with a couple in the middle of a divorce who had both moved out that's where we were at with that, that it made sense to me, why would I put any of my capital into this when I already have so much equity? So with the VA capability, we went into it with nothing down. We took all the equity from the other home we sold out of Arlington, and we took that money and we used it to improve the home. So you have to figure out which one of these loans works the best for you, but you know, interest rates are a function of your credit and the current market, and there's not a lot you're going to do to change that. So there's my basics on... Financing, And let me add one more thing. Don't ever, 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 in my opinion, do an ARM loan. If you're going to do it on the 80-20 thing, you better know why you're doing it. But to me, an adjustable rate mortgage is for the stupid. It's for the stupid. It's for the quick gratification. And you have no idea what's going to happen two, three, four, five years down the road. I will not do an ARM loan ever. Next, to understand buying, first you have to understand selling. If you understand selling, you are a savvy buyer. If you don't understand selling, you are a sucker buyer. And I'm sorry if that offends anybody, but that's the truth. And as a guy that spent a lot of my life selling, not just selling real estate, because that was a very, you know, that was pretty much we'd buy a home, fix it up, and sell it, and buy another home. Um, And stair-stepped our way up in in the world that way. But that wasn't a job. That wasn't income. It wasn't even really investing in the classic sense. It was, I need a place to live, and this is a formula to live smart. But I spent a lot of my life negotiating deals as a salesperson. I was a regional sales vice president for a $500 million company, for those that don't know my history, and I was the number one sales uh, VP in the world in that company for three consecutive years. Now, I was selling technology versus homes, but the sales process is the same. And the negotiation as a seller is the same. Okay. And I spent a lot of other years selling in other environments. That's just the one that's the most notable. So I understand the sales process. And I took that understanding of the sales process and the motivation that a buyer has, and I built that into what I call the 1% effect. Uh, me and Dustin DeFreef wrote a book called The 1% Effect on Selling Real Estate. You can get it. it's an ebook on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes today. But I'm going to give you the short, short version of the 1% effect. You figure out how much a house like yours is going to sell for in a range. Let's say two hundred and twenty dollars to $240,000. That's your range. That is, every buyer that's going to look at your house is looking at houses somewhere in about that range, maybe a little more or a little less, but they're in that window. And then most buyers, not all, but most buyers, are in a relatively small geography. Like when I bought this house, we were in a totally different type of geographic zone. We had like a point of where Dorothy's dad lived, and then a giant circle around it. It didn't matter north, south, east, or west. Best house in this giant circle of about an hour's drive worked. Most buyers are not going to buy that way. They're going to be in a relatively narrow geography—a zip code, a subdivision, uh, several blocks within a certain school district, next to somebody's work, right? So they going to be relative. So that actually takes the window of houses they have to look at, and it makes it small. You could pull up that window. And then it says there's nine hundred and eighty six houses there. But when you say, Okay, but I also want a three bedroom minimum, two bath minimum, um definitely want a yard, don't want um a townhouse or a row house or garden house like with adjoining another I don't want a zero lot line, uh I do or don't want a pool, right? When they when you do all that and then my price range is two hundred and twenty to two hundred and forty thousand dollars. Because they don't want to go too much lower because they feel that that is less than they really, they'll never get what they want that cheap, which is stupid. I'll look as low as it goes. If it meets all the other criteria, the lower the better. Unless there's a bad, bad reason for it, right? Um, is that reason fixable, et cetera? Like if it's in a neighborhood where you're going to get shot, I can't fix that. We'll talk about those types of uh, scales of permanence in, in a bit. Uh, but so I, you, you just understand that that's what's going to happen, though. Even if it's a bad area, that person's looking in that bad area because that's what they can afford, and they want the best they can afford in that price zone. So then you look at all the property that sells for, that's on sale for about what you want to sell your home for. And then you look at the quality of those homes, the carpet, the countertops, the cabinets, um, the landscaping. You basically look at everything. And then you say to yourself, Self, how do I make this house? Look one percent better than the best house currently listed in this price range, and you do that. Whatever you need to do to be one percent better, and if you can be five percent better, fine. But it only takes one percent in totality. So maybe the countertops are a little better. This is a little bit better. The carpet's new. The appliances newish. Uh, the paint is fresher. And see, it depends. Like if everybody's done that, then you have to find what is the what is the one thing you can do to be a little bit better, because uh, Selective Sally is going to be buying a home, and Selective Sally is going to look at all the homes that the real estate agent shows her. Well, what all the real estate agent is going to do is what Selective Sally could do at Realtor.com herself. They're going to put in all the criteria Selective Sally says she wants, they're going to get all the houses that meet her criteria, they're going to give her a group of, of houses to look at with pictures she's going to select her ass through those, those, those listings and say, I want to see these four houses. She might even drive by them and get kind of the feel for them before she says, I want, a, I want a showing of these. Then she's going to walk in and look at them. And if she's actually going to buy, whatever one looks the best, she's going to settle for. Selective Sally will become settling Sally. And every buyer settles. Let me say that again. Every buyer settles. Especially with a house, especially with a the house they're going to live in. If, you're, if, you're real, if your real estate budget is 1.4 to 1.6 million, you're a settler. You're still going to buy for that money where you want to live the best thing you can find for your money and you're still going to wish you could get a little bit more. If you buy that if your budget is 120 to 140,000, 10% percent of the millionaire budget, you're going to do the exact same thing. Everybody that buys does that. Let me say it one more time, just to be totally abundantly clear. Not most real estate buyers. Even people that are smart and follow my formula for buying. We're still doing that. We're just doing it with more knowledge. Every real estate buyer is actually settling for less than they want. So once you're 1% better, you're going to move the property. Every time... Not sometimes, every time. And the reason is you pick out any block of geography, you pick out any price zone, and you watch it for a month. Some house will sell unless you you, know, you narrow it down to a, you know one block in the worst market ever. In a relatively reasonable geography, at every price range that's, that's anywhere near the median, a little below, a little above of what houses sell for, somebody's house sells. If you're 1% better in a range, you will be the one house. If 10 sell, yours will get multiple offers because it will be the only one they can settle for that meets that level. So how does that help you buy? You put it in reverse. You want to identify all the homes that show at least 1% worse than the homes in the pricing window. You want to find the ones that they just didn't do these things. When you walk into the house, the carpet needs replacing. Carpet's cheap. If they didn't do it. They can't afford to do it. Or they would have done it. Or they're stubborn and it's going to bite them and let it bite them to your advantage. You walk in and the paint's just not... It doesn't look good. It's not fresh. It's clearly they didn't have the place painted. Right? And it's, it's... You know, at least you could have painted the, the living area and the kitchen. The tile on the kitchen floor, the grout is dirty. Right? I mean, things like that. Little things, especially if all the other houses that you've looked at did those things. That house is going to go last. That house is going to sit. Because they didn't even try. They either can't afford to or they don't want to because of stubbornness. So you're looking for 1% and 10% is even better. Now, that doesn't mean you're looking for the house the foundation cracked in half. You're not looking for the house that actually has real problems. You're asking, you're looking for the house that shows poorly, but it's an easy fix. Here's an example. When we bought this house, there's five bedrooms in it. Four of the bedrooms, they had ripped out the carpet. They had bought, I guess, because they got it on sale, because I don't know, I don't even know why you would do that. I don't know why anybody would do this. But they got, if you know what parquet flooring is, parquet was kind of popular in the 70s. It was a wood flooring, like a laminate wood flooring, kind of looked checkerboardish. And it came in a light color and a dark color. And as bad as the light color was, the dark wood was even worse. Okay, they did the dark wood color of parquet flooring in four of our bedrooms. And they did it with peel and stick tile. So it's basically like a uh, linoleum peel and stick parquet. I mean, it looked like somebody puked it out. But you know what? It was really easy to just go pick out a really decent carpet for those bedrooms and have it installed. And we knew exactly how much that was going to cost us. You see how that works, right? They didn't they were in a situation where they wouldn't or they didn't take that into consideration. So when you looked at the listing of the house, it seemed almost way too well-priced for what it was. And the listing price on my house was 265 and I paid, dun-dun-dun, 205 Got it? Okay? Did you see the formula I'm using now and how it works? So you're looking for those inadequacies, but there was nothing complicated about that fix. There was nothing wrong with the floor except it was ugly. There's nothing difficult about it. Whatever flooring we wanted, whatever that costs, you can figure that out in minutes what the cost of installation of that flooring is. You can be ballpark, and you know what that's going to cost you. And you know how long I can tolerate living without that. And for the parquet flooring, it wasn't long. The next thing you're looking for, find homes that were on the market for more than 90 days. If a home has sat for three months or more, that buyer is in no position to push hard on negotiation. Now, they may not be in touch with reality yet. The world may still revolve around their emotional attachment to their home. They may have more money than brains to sustain a losing game. But they're in a bad when your home has been listed for 90 days without an offer, you're in a bad, bad, bad situation. Really bad. Okay? So you want 90 days or more listing. Now, if it's not, if it's you know, 80 days, I'd still think that if it's more than 40 days, you're really starting to get into a point. Because I have to, you, you got to think about it this way. Let's say that the house is for sale for $200,000. Make a nice, round, easy number. And let's say the cost, this is going to be high, but it'll make the numbers really easy to make in your head. About $2,000 a month it takes to maintain that home. Pay the mortgage, pay the insurance, um, all the things it takes for that house to sit there. And so that person's asking two hundred thousand dollars for that house. In thirty days, effectively they got one hundred ninety-eight thousand for their house. In another thirty days, effectively they got one hundred ninety-six thousand for their house. If they get a full price offer. In another thirty days, they're getting one ninety-four. In another thirty days, they're getting one ninety-two. You see how that goes? And if it goes a year, just knock twenty-four grand off the price of the house. Now, they're still going to get, if they if they get lucky and they manage to get that price for the house, they're going to still get that chunk of cash, but that money still went out of pocket. The longer that goes, the more that eats away at a buyer. So the next thing you're really looking for, an empty home. If it's an empty home and it's been on the market for 40, 60 days, because remember, if it's a flip, it's not going to go on the market till the written is done. That means the rental's been done, ready to make my money, put it up for sale, it's not selling. I haven't got an offer yet. 40 days, 90 days or more, and an empty home. You've got a failed flip, or they already bought another home and moved into it, and now they're paying for two, or maybe they're a divorce and they're both living in different places, and somehow they're both paying for it. And the money they're going to get is going to be split by the divorce court, and it's dwindling away. That's how I bought in Pennsylvania. I do not consider this predatory. Somebody is going to buy that house anyway or not. The fact that I'm willing to do it now solves their problem. That's my proposition as a buyer. Because the next step is to be a smart and savvy negotiator. And this is where you might have to do some of the work for the real estate agent. When you make an offer and they they counter with something ridiculous, you might want to say, listen, I need you. If you're dealing with two agents, contact this other agent and tell them to have a very stark, frank conversation with their client. This house has been listed for 192 days. Better offers are not lining up. I am willing to give you an extra $2,500. Take my offer, or I'm going to find somebody who will. And you need to... What I've done, I have written emails for my... Because I don't trust them to say the words. I'm going to send you this email. I want you to put your name on it. And if you're not comfortable with that, I want you to say, this is an email from my client. This is where they are. And you forward it to that other agent and advise them to make sure that their client sees that email exactly as it was written. Because you need to put that person in touch with reality because people get emotional about real estate. It's my home. I grew up there. You know what? Nobody buying it gives a shit. No one cares. I'm a podcaster with a quarter million people in my audience. I have people that line up to to talk to me when I do a public event. And if I sell my house, no one gives a shit that it was Jack Spirko's house. It's kind of a talking point and all, maybe to some people, but in the end, no one gives a shit. So if you're Frank from Fresno, no one gives a shit about your family. Nobody cares. And no one should care. Now people get emotional as buyers for other reasons, but it's not because Frank from Fresno raised his family there. Now Frank from Fresno is emotional about that, so even with that reality touch, they may not, they may not, come down. But that is the key to getting them to come down, or getting them to come down to whatever they're willing to come down to, to find out what that really that number really is. Everybody that puts an offer in eventually expects to pay more. And everybody that sets a price of, expects in general to possibly at least have to negotiate down. There's When, when markets are red hot, it's expected often that we'll get multiple offers that will actually sell more for the listing. That's not happening right now. And it's never happening with a house that's been on the market for 90 days. It's never happening and it's never going to happen with that house and the condition that's in probably because it fails the 1% to the negative test. As long as there are houses... For the same money that are better, that house is, I don't care what potential it has, it is never selling unless there's a very compelling reason, like it's adjacent to a national park and somebody's in love with that idea. That is the only way it's selling. There's property I know of right now that's been on the market for eight years. It's mostly land. It's ridiculously overpriced. It's not selling. But since he owns the real estate and waits, eventually the market may come up. But if he actually needs to sell, he's going to come down. He has to, right? All right, so finding a home. This is how we find a home. This is the thought process. Because th- I can't tell you what you want. I can't tell you what to look for. you got to figure it out for yourself. So the first thing I want you to do is, again, I want, I will say this until the day I die, HOAs are the devil. Homeowners associations are evil. They exist for people who can't get enough government. You already have the federal government, state government, county government, and some form of local government like a city or town, township, etc. You already have all those layers of government. And you're like, you know what? That's not enough. We need another layer of government. That's what an HOA is. It is not something that protects your property values. It is a layer of government. It is force that compels compliance. It is a form of a private state Now, if there was no federal, state, county, and city government, I would think HOAs are a great solution to a real problem. There's a free-for-all, and we want to have some control over how people behave here in our neighborhood. That said, I bought a property one time with a POA, or Property Owners Association, which is usually just another word for the devil, Um, but it was an interesting one. And it was my property in Arkansas. And nothing about it bothered me. And it was the last line of the covenant, is what they called it, that that made me 100% okay with it. Um, The first uh, rule was that you could have no more than one occupied structure per acre and only one primary residence per five acres. So if you wanted to put an RV on your five acres and let your family live there, that was fine. But if you were going to build multiple home sites, it was a five-acre minimum per home site. Number two, the roofs had to be real roofs of the primary residence. So basically, you you, you couldn't live in an RV, but there was an exception. You had up to two years to build. If you bought a property that wasn't developed yet, you could live in an RV. But you had to be building. Okay. I'm okay with that, Um, especially since almost all the property had already been sold and was already developed. So that wasn't even going to be an issue at that point. Um, There was one other thing that I don't remember now because it's so long ago, but it was the final line. And it was that the covenant may not be altered without 100% unanimous consent of all residents within the POA. So the only way you could add to it or take away from it was for 100% of everybody to agree. So if I didn't agree with something and all of my neighbors didn't agree with something, it could never be changed. As far as I know, it's still never been changed. That's that's an exception to the rule. In general, an HOA will tell you things like, well, if you want to put up a shed, you have to give us a mock-up of it. Like, one of the properties we looked at was so yeah, in the middle of nowhere on a lake. And we thought, this is just great. We'll build here. So when we bought this place, we were open to building, too. And, uh, you know, it was like, well, if you want to put a fence in, you have to basically make a scale model of your fence and present it to the board. Uh, duh, done. But see, nope, nope, done. I don't even want to know what else there is. I'm finished. So stay away from HOAs. If you don't, you only have yourself to blame. Okay, now, let's move on to... um actually finding a house you want. What I think you need to do is list everything that you want. Everything that you want. No matter how tiny or how big. No matter how piddly it seems or how huge it seems, you should list everything you actually want. Because you just might find it. So don't even feel bad about listing something you're like, I really could live without that. We're going to get to that. That's the next phase. So everything that you want. Now, go through that list and score that list. Really good to do this with Excel because you can sort in Excel. You don't have to put it in order. You can just do it and then you can sort by field, right? So, number so ranking of 1 for this. I have to have it. If I can't have this, the deal's off. For me that would be the absence of an HOA, unless there's an exception like a covenant that I described. I have to have that. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. For me, the ability to keep livestock was when we moved here If I I I knew I wanted some you know and I didn't have to have horses and cows and shit but like if I couldn't keep chickens and ducks and some stuff like that it was a no. That was a one for me, and what it's whatever it is for you. I had to have a spot for a garden. I had to have at least a couple acres. There were things that I, I I was not willing to give up what I had in Arkansas and move here without them. And my wife had her ones too. Must be within an hour of Dad's house, you know. Must be close to our son again. Like these were. Hard ones. And that that limited our geography and our type of property we can look at. That's so why it took eight months instead of eight weeks to find a property. Okay, And it did. It took us eight months. Number two. Um, if you rank it as a two, what you're saying is, I really want it. And I probably cannot be happy without it right away. So I want it. I I got to have it. I can do without it for a little bit. That's a two. The next is, I really want it. I don't want to give it up, but I can do without it for a time. So instead of like, you know, when we moved in, to us when we looked at the floors in this place, we didn't, and that would have made, never made our list initially. But we would have retroactively put it on the list. Like we had to be able to get. It was so hideous. We had to be. We had to have the financial ability to get rid of that very quickly. It had to go fast. I was not capable of living in a house with that flooring for a sustained period of time. Now, when I was 24 years old, I would have been. I was at a different place in my life. That's what this has to be unique to you. right? But three is I really want it, and I don't want to give it up, but I can do without it for a while. Like I, To me, I always wanted a really nice outdoor kitchen. The fact that I knew it could happen, it didn't matter how long it was going to take me to be able to do it. Right? I could do without it for a time. Number, if you rank it as a four, I, I'd like it, but I can live without it. I'm not going to hate this house if I can never make this thing happen. And number five, it would be nice, but I won't really factor it into my decision for the right property. It'd be nice if it had this, but if everything else is good, I, I wouldn't even consider saying no because of this. But it might drag another horse across the line. And rank it one through five that way. By the way, all of this is in the show notes today. You don't have to write it down. All you got to do is look up the uh, show notes for episode 2658, and you'll find this. Okay, so that's your wants and your ranks. Now, as you find homes, you're going to find none of them have everything that you want. So you need to rank them from one to five on the scale of permanence for the issue. So I have to have it would be a one- but a scale of permanence might be a two or a three or a four. Okay? And then we can sort by that and we can determine the best house. We're working the 1% effect instead of how it shows, right? Which is how we sell the house, as to how it meets our needs, which is how we buy the house. Because we're buying on a totally different formula. We're looking for the house that shows terribly, but perfectly or very closely meets my needs. This is the psychology of buying savvy, right? So a five is. There is no way I can ever have it in this home. Can't be done. So if I want to have a nice sunny spot for a garden and a giant mountain casts a shadow whenever the sun is out and there will never be sun unless that mountain goes away on my yard, a sunny garden spot becomes a 5. That's a no-go. Now, is it really a no-go? Well... If it's a 5 on the scale of permanence, but it's also a 5 on my list of wants, eh, cuz a 5 on my list of wants is it would be nice, but I don't really factor it into my decision for the right property. All right. If it's a 1, I have to have it, and it's a 5, there is no way I can ever have it with this home. I want a big kitchen and the layout of the home like addition doesn't work like just I have to have it and it doesn't work. That's going to be a really easy home to shit can. All right. A four, so we're going in reverse order here. Like five is wah, wah, wah. A one is ah, right? Um, four, it's possible, but it's going to be very expensive or very difficult to do. Let me back up to a five. You want to keep chickens, and there's a law that says you can't keep chickens. Technically, it's a four. You need to, to, to mark it as a five. Changing laws is up with moving mountains on the scale of permanence, right? So four is, it can be done but it's going to be complicated and or expensive to ever get done. And it's going to end up, because of that, going really far out in time if it ever occurs. This property, even though I tried to do it against my better judgment, putting an in-ground pond in, it's on a rock slab. It's possible, but it's very expensive, very difficult to do, and it's probably not worth it. That's a four. Three, I can have this, for a reasonable cost, at some point in time down the road. That, for me, was my outdoor kitchen. Wanted an outdoor kitchen. This is a good spot for an outdoor kitchen. It's going to be expensive. It's going to be a lot of work. It's going to be a big project. I got my outdoor kitchen about six years after we moved in. That's a perfect explanation of a three. I wasn't not going to buy over it. So I would have said... It was probably somewhere between a 3 and a 4. You can make it a 3.5. A 3 would have been, I really want it. I don't want to give it up, but I can do without it for a time. And 4 would have been, I, I would like it, but I can live without it. It was somewhere in there for me. Because I could always do other things. I always had some other flexibility. Well, you know, Something cook outside. 2. A 2 is really good. I can have this for a reasonable cost... Relatively quickly, like my flooring. I hated the flooring in here. I could just look at the square footage and go, meh carpet in this room is going to be about three hundred bucks." That's not a problem. See, I it's I have the money. I can have it done. Hell, I could probably have this done before we move in and have to move furniture. This room is ugly. Uh, I know a guy that paints rooms like this for about two hundred fifty bucks. Mm, The paint's gonna cost me about fifty dollars. Okay, three hundred bucks. This room can be painted. Those are twos. The only thing standing between them is is a little effort or a little money. And it's it's money that even if like one percent budgets are relative. To me, like when I add all that up, and okay, it's gonna cost me about two grand to carpet and paint in this house. I might be like, eh. When I was twenty-four, I was like, huh. All of a sudden, it moved up. To A three. I know it's reasonable, but I can't do it right away. See how that works? We bought our house in Pennsylvania. Some of the stuff we could do right away, because we had money from the last house, some of the stuff had to wait. So it moved up to a three. What today is a two used to be a three, because we've, we've developed more in life. A one is I can have this with simple sweat equity. I can do this myself. All it's going to take is work, and the amount of money is piddly. So that might be I don't mind painting my own rooms and 50 bucks worth of paint, I'm just going to paint this before we move in. That's a one. That's really beneficial in your first, second home, you know, when you're buying kind of that entry level house and you're young and you don't have a lot of money, you don't have a lot to work with, but you have time and you're willing to do things and you're handy. And anything like that, if you can do it before you move in, if you can give yourself like a two week window, it will pay itself back to pay double payments for two weeks. And you know, you usually don't actually make your first mortgage payment until a month later anyway, right? So you have your out-of-pocket down payment. Where you get hairy with that is when you have to sell the house for the down payment to buy the next house. But if you're like in an apartment buying your first home, you give yourself 14 days after closing to do things like paint and things like that, even if you're having somebody else do it, they will charge you less money. And if I'm going to have the carpet done, Then I just go in and paint, and then I have the carpet done. I don't give a shit if I spill on the carpet. It's getting replaced. If I'm going to put hardwood floors in, I just go in and paint, and if paint gets on the floor or the carpet, I don't care. You know, I move, I do the things that I can do with the house empty first. But then let's just go through it again. One, i got to have it. Two, I really want it and likely won't be totally happy without it unless I get it right away. It's got to be, you know, like in the next first six months, I got to be able to do this. Three, I really want it, don't want to give it up, but I can do without it for a time. Four, I would like it, but I can live without it. Five, it would be nice, but I really won't factor it into my final decision if the property's right otherwise. And when you find homes that are in your price range and you start making a list of one through five, of what it doesn't have that you want, then add to it another column in your spreadsheet. There's no way I can ever have this ever in my home. All right? Four, it is possible very expensive or very difficult to do. Three, I can have this for a reasonable cost at some point in time down the road. Longer than I would like, but it can be done, and I probably will eventually. Okay? Two, I can have this for a reasonable cost relatively quickly. One, I can have this with simple sweat equity. It will just take work. Once you do that and you're shopping that way, you are a better prepared buyer than 99% of buyers. Your real estate agent will also hate you. Because you'll be able to walk into a house and go, nope. You'll also be able to say, this is how much I'm willing to offer for this home. But, you know, no. no. This is, I know what I need to fix all of my, all of my, you know, all of my threes and fours and twos. I know what I need to do that. I know what I need to fix my ones on the things I have to have. I have to have it. I know what I need to do, and I know what it's going to cost, and I, I know. And therefore, I will walk away if I cannot get it for this price. Because they want to convince you that everything can be solved, everything can be fixed. And everything can be fixed, but it's not their money that's going to fix it. Your money is going to become their money when you buy the house. They are not putting you first. No matter how good your real estate agent is, they're not putting you first. They're putting the need to feed their family and pay for their own home first because that's their job. doesn't mean they're bad. It's just what they do. Okay. Um, So then you need to make your own decision on which house to make an offer on. And you need to make your own decision on price. Now, you can get guidance from your agent like, that's not going to fly. And then you can say, well, what do you think is going to fly? And then they'll tell you. And then you can factor that into all this knowledge you have now all these rankings you have now and say that number does work for me or doesn't work for me. Okay, um, and you need really good communication with the buyers, and a lot of times, like I said, you're gonna have to do the agent's work for them because most of them are morons. Here's an example: when we put the offer in on this house, they asked for two fifty, no two sixty. Um, my agent suggested offering them two thirty. I said, "Screw that, two and a quarter." By the way, I don't think it's going to appraise for that because it shows like a turd. But I'm fine with getting the contract established at two and a quarter. They came back at 235. She said, we should take it. I said, you're an idiot. I mean, that's literally were my word's out. of my. you're an idiot. Tell them two and a quarter or go screw. The house has been on the market for 180 days. Why are we having this conversation? They came back, yeah, we'll take two and a quarter. Okay, great. And I'm smiling. I can afford it. I'm willing to do it. And that's why I didn't, even though I thought I was playing a good game, I didn't take the higher offer because I needed to start at a a, a number where I already was okay with it. Appraisal came back. $200,000. My stupid, moronic, incompetent real estate agent called me up and said, well, can you come up with an extra $25,000? And I said, are you really that stupid? I I really said that. Are you really that stupid? Do you really think I'm going to pay $25,000 more for a house... It appraised at $200,000. We are both aware that it's undervalued. But I, I told her, I said, Cindy, what you're not aware of is how screwed they are and how much power we have now. And because I'm a benevolent human being that was willing to make a reasonable offer, I agreed to come up with $5,000 extra to close. Because buying this place for two hundred five was a steal, in my opinion. I also knew what they owed on the property, about $160,000. And I knew they had already relocated to another property out of state, and they were paying for this one. So I knew they'd take a big check out of it, and I knew it would get them out from underneath it, and I knew that they had been paying for it for six months. I also knew this. This is very important. To know. Once that property appraises for that shitty appraisal, they are screwed. That went down as an official appraisal. When another house gets appraised, that appraiser is going to pull houses that sold and and prior appraisals. If they appraise that house again, there's an open appraisal on it. It's going to show up. You're not going to get another appraiser to come in there and jack the appraisal up $30,000. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. They're screwed. The best they could do is delist the house, let it be delisted for 30 days, put it back on the market, and hope they get another offer, and then hope that appraise is higher. By then, that mortgage payment, insurance, etc., has already eaten their lunch for anything they would have gotten back. I probably could have been a total dick and said, you know what, my offer now is 199 5 and still got the deal because I was a benevolent man and because the deal was so good and you people that have seen this property know... To buy this property for 205 dollars is ridiculous because I did the reverse 1% formula. That's how I bought this property for that. They said, well, we'll have to think about it. Go ahead. Think about it. It was just before Christmas. So we don't expect to hear back from them until after New Year's. My wife is biting her fingernails. My real estate agent is freaking out. She spent all this time trying to get us to buy a house. She's like, but you loved it. I'm like, I don't love any house until I own it. I don't love shit. I'm a businessman. I'm making an offer. I'm not emotionally attached to the property. Relax. About 3rd of January, they accepted our offer. Why? Because they didn't have another alternative. As a negotiator, we got into a point where we realized that, and I had to write letters, and I had to do exactly what I said. Cindy? You send this without changing a word. If you don't want to put your name on it, you say this comes from my client. My client is fair, but he is an asshole. This is his position. You change one word, and you are fired. And I will go directly to that agent. I will fire you under your contract for altering my statements to the seller. I will can your ass, and I will negotiate directly. Do you understand me? Copy me when you send this email. Okay, done. She's all. I don't know about this, and when I sold my house in Arkansas, same kind of shit. Got a lowball offer. We need to counter. No, we don't. Counter is the current offer. It's such a stupid offer. We're not doing it. Week later, property sold for a little over asking. Two of the people who gave me the lowball offer. You got to do their work for them, folks, because they all they want to do is sell the property or get you to buy the property. They don't know what they're doing ninety percent of the time. The ones that do are invaluable. When I bought the house I bought in Arlington here, the one I owned when I started the show, I got an agent through a referral from another agent. agent in Pennsylvania contacted a referral network, got me. She was golden. She was golden. She knew her shit. I learned from her, and I already knew what I'm telling you. I learned more by working with her. She was outstanding. Okay, get a wheel, put one to a hundred on it, like a spinning wheel, like on a Wheel of Fortune or whatever, one to a hundred your odds of pulling a 1, a 5, or a 9, about 3%, are your odds of getting a good real estate agent, even if you know what to look for when you try to find one. About 97% of them do not know what the F they're doing, or what they know how to do is get you to buy. Okay? They call, I'm a buyer's broker. You sell houses. You're not a buyer's broker. You sell houses. I guarantee you when I say, well, I'm a buyer's broker, do you, do you, if I was listing a house, would you take, well, yeah, so you're not a buyer's broker, you're going to act as a buyer's broker for me, your job is to sell houses, either to me, by selling somebody else's listing, or to sell your own listing to somebody else, you sell houses, your first job is to get this house to be bought by somebody, it is not to look out for my interests, I don't care what you say, I don't care what the TV says, that's not how it works, I look out for my interests. I use you because you're necessary in the system. If you're good at what you do, I would use you again. The lady that I have was named Mary. That was great. The only reason I didn't use her when I sold that house or when I bought again here is she retired because she was so good, she made so much money, she bought enough properties of her own that she was a landlord of that she had enough money come in and she didn't want to deal with, with dealing with it anymore. And if you're an expert in real estate and you can't get there in 15 years... You're not an expert in real estate. okay? So just accept that most of them don't know what they're doing. Now, let me give you my six laws of buying a property. You're going to like these six laws. You're going to want to commit them to memory. Rule one, never overpay for a property. Okay. Rule number one, never overpay for a property, which means you do not pay more for a property than it's really worth. You can pay over appraisal a little bit, but that's because the appraisal sucks because of the negative 1% effect. right? Don't believe in the, they call it the bigger suckers rule. I'll buy this probably because no matter what, it's so good that I'll always be able to sell to somebody else. If that was the case, this person wouldn't have been listing it for 140 days. Rule one, never overpay for a property. Rule two, never get invest, emotionally invested in a property. It is a piece of dirt with sticks on it until you own it it is not your home you are not attached to it you have no obligations to it it has no obligations to you it is shit it is nothing it is an idea it is a concept once you buy it then you can do all kinds of shit with it until the numbers are right you don't care you're not invested emotionally in a property there will always be another one no emotional investment that's rule number two rule number three this is going to sound familiar Never overpay for a property. <laughs> okay? Rule number one, never overpay for a property. Rule number two, never get emotionally invested in a property. Rule number three, never overpay for a property. Rule number four, never over No, it's not. Okay. Rule number four, be willing to walk away from any deal. No matter how much you broke rule two, rule two already. No matter how much any times you've already seen yourself sitting on a swing under an oak tree. No matter how you how convinced you are that this is the property for you. No matter how many properties you've looked at, and this one hit the 1% effect for you, if the deal is wrong, you have to be willing to walk away. Most of the time, if you're walking away because the deal is wrong, sooner or later, the deal will become right because you're willing to walk away. If it doesn't, find another deal. So rule number four, be willing to walk away from any deal. Rule number five, never overpay for a property. It's not a typo. It's in the six rules three times for a reason, to drive it into your skull. Because I know someday some agent's going to tell you, well, you can come up with an extra $15,000, right? Just like Cindy told me, you dumbass. No, I can't. I can. I'm not going to. Because I'm going to use that fifteen grand to fix all my freaking twos and threes. Okay, of things that aren't the way I want them. I'm not giving it to them. They're screwed. They're the ones that didn't fix this up so it would sell for what it was worth. They didn't have time. They didn't think they needed to, whatever it was. They were lazy. They were apathetic. Whatever it is, they're screwed. I'm not paying them for their mistakes. Right. So never overpay for a property. And rule six, always buy with thoughts about an exit strategy. The things I'm going to do, the costs that I'm going to put into it, what will this property be worth in 18 to 24 months if I have to get out of here? If you can't make that work, if you can't set yourself up with the ability to walk away from that property, put some money back into your pocket, the deal is wrong. Go back to rule number four, being willing to walk away. Never overpay. Never get emotionally invested. Never overpay. Be willing to walk away. Never overpay. Always buy with thoughts of an extra strategy. There's no magic... But there's being smart, and just like 1% better is good enough to sell your house when others fail, and the bottom 1% of properties are the ones you can get deals on, being 1% smarter than average is enough on either side of the deal. If you're 1% better as a buyer than every other buyer, you get the best deal. If you're 1% better as a seller than every other seller, right, you get the best price. Do you see how simple that is? Now, when I've done shows about this before, I have had real estate agents walk up to me and say, if the average person knew the simplistic formula you use, none of us would have a job. And my response to some of them has been, a lot of you shouldn't. It's way too easy to get a real estate license, in my opinion. It really is. right? It's more about regulation and controlling, and gilding than it is about competence and ability to get a good deal for somebody as either a seller or a buyer. Because the people that sold this house, what their real estate agent did was do a valuation that was what they wanted to hear so they could get the listing and list it, and figure sooner or later it'll sell one way or another, I'll get my money. They should have said, listen, um, this flooring, this is shit. Now look, I can get you a good price on this house, but boy, this is shit. So what you need to do is get some builder-based carpet in here. This, uh, this kitchen is shit. Paint these countertops and put a coating on them. Or throw some decent laminate on it. And take this one cabinet that you think is a... And just throw this away. Burn this thing. Set it on fire. So somebody sees this as a place to put a table. These holes in the ceiling. Get a, get a handyman here to fix this shit. Just pack it, clean, this shit to, clean this shit up. Right? Have somebody mow this place while you're not here. Like there were so many little things like that, they could have put five thousand dollars in his house, and I guarantee you it would have appraised not for the two sixty they were asking, but it probably would have appraised for the two and a quarter I was willing to pay. And I would have had to do most of the things I was going to do to it anyway. But I got that deal because they wouldn't do those things. They either would not or could not do those things. The agent didn't do his job. They didn't do. They didn't listen to him. I don't know. I don't care. When it comes to real estate. I am a Vulcan. Logic only. No emotion. Now, the day I closed on it, I was happy. And my emotions flowed until the deal was sealed. I am a heartless son of a bitch that doesn't care about you. And I even got some guilt trip pushback. Well, they have a lot of kids and they're really worried. I don't care. In fact, you better tell them if they care about those kids and they want to stop spending all the money they are to support this house they don't live in now, they should take my offer. I don't want to hear somebody's sob story. That's not my problem. I'm not the one that did this. No one else is going to come in and give a shit about this either. And if you don't have that attitude, you are not emotionally in the place to be buying a home. You only have to do it for a time. Once you buy the house, you can be as emotional as you want about it. Okay. And the key is a clear, reasonable vision of what a property can be versus what it currently is. Now, this is what you have to. This is where you have to balance it. And real estate agents are the worst at screwing this up for you because they'll say things like, "Well, you could just take down this wall. It'll open this whole space up. It'll be like another house." Do they know if that wall's load bearing? Do they know the cost? Of it? Do they know what's inside that wall? Do you know what rerouting the plumbing and electrical in that wall is going to cost me? Do you know what it costs to take a concrete saw and open up this floor so that you can channel it and run the pipes through this floor because the plumbing doesn't go there right now? That pathway that's in there, you can say we just take that out and open up that ceiling level. Do you know what's inside there? Because when the contractor looked at it, he said he didn't know it was in there and he wouldn't know until he opened it and I could be screwed. And it could cost me $500 or $5,000. It's a big variable. He doesn't know and he does it for a living. You don't know. So when you start looking at what a house can become, you have to be clear and reasonable on cost and capability. And just because something can be done doesn't mean it will ever financially make sense to do. If I'm going to put $25,000 into a house and it's going to increase the equity value of the home by $5,000, I'm probably not going to do it. Probably not going to do it. That's losing money. I don't believe in losing money. I don't like losing money. Losing money is being bad to the money. See, there's a thing here that you have to understand. This is a principled truth. It has to do with why jobs go to other, other countries. And it has to do with why some people do really well in life and some people do really poorly in life. It's that broad. It goes all the way across it, and it's a very short phrase. Money goes where it's treated well. If you are bad to money, money will be bad to you and it will leave you. Because money is energy, and energy obeys laws, basically laws of thermodynamics. But it's it's eco-thermodynamics, economic thermodynamics. You treat money poorly, you repel money. You treat money well, money flows to you. When it comes to real estate, it is the largest single asset that you will fool with in your life. If you break the rules and treat money poorly when it comes to real estate, you will get burned in the ass hard. I mean hard. If you do it right, you will be rewarded richly. And if you do not have this mental state when it comes to shopping for real estate, you need to not be doing it. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. I hope you enjoyed today's show. And I want to remind you, you can help support the show and the work we do by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. And I have a first for you today in my item of the day. I have never before suggested that you buy a living creature. Now, I've, living plants, sure. A living creature, like an Animal Kingdom member on Amazon. These are rosy red Minnows from Toledo Goldfish. I found Toledo Goldfish on Amazon. I'm like, wow, these guys are great. As long as like everything shows up on time and isn't dead. So I bought 500 rosy red minnows. Now just the weight of that alone is expensive shipping, right? So I bought 500 rosy red minnows for my new aquatic habitat. 106 bucks for 500 of them, and I had one floater out of 500. And when I went to pull him out, he kind of like spun around and like, hey, I ain't dead. he said, you know, I'm not dead yet. Now, for all I know, he could have been stone cold in a minute or two. I don't know. Uh, a little movie reference there for you. But I threw him in with everybody else, and I didn't see any floating in the thing. So maybe that fresh water brought him back. Um, they're a great fish. Uh, there's a video. There's a great write-up on them. And they were awesome. The only thing I would say is they shipped a the day early. My buddy David bought a no, 2,000. 2,000 blacks and 2,000 pinks. I'll talk about that in a second. Um and he had one floater out of 2,000. His floater was float. His floater was stone cold. Um, uh, so it was great experience, except they shipped a day early. I got them Tuesday. They said they were coming Wednesday, and I didn't get any notice. Now, if I would have tracked them in Amazon, I probably would have known. But I just took them at their word. So that's the one thing to be on the alert for. That's not a bad thing. Less time, in the mail, better for live critters. But if the postman sets a box of fish... On your porch, and the sun hits it for five or six hours till you get home because you didn't know that they were coming. Yeah, you can see where that'd be a problem. Now they did have a cold pack in them to keep them cool, so you got that going for you, which is nice. Another movie reference, um, but they were just great. Now the thing about Toledo Goldfish is, I started looking at their pro- seller profile on Amazon. They got all kinds of cool stuff for you guys for your backyard stuff. Shabunkin Goldfish are cool. They have those. They have koi, which people know koi, crayfish, trapdoor snails, bullfrog tadpoles, mosquito fish, a bunch of other stuff. So I think they're worth checking out. Um, and you can get more for less. Uh, you can get 500 rosy reds for 80 bucks instead of the 106. I paid if you get small ones. And they grow. You can get 1,000 small rosy reds for $100. So with shipping, is $106 for tax and shipping for 1,000 of them. My buddy David got the rosy reds and the black ones. What does that mean? Okay, so rosy reds are nothing but what's called a fathead minnow. They're basically an amelanistic fathead minnow. They're a mutation. And they're used for feeders. They're used in uh, fish. They're great for bait because they show up so well. That's why they don't, you know, they, they naturally have this mutation, but they don't propagate that way in the in the wild because if there's a pink one, he gets eaten first, Right. <laughs> But they're great because when you put them in like a small backyard pond or something like that, since they're pink, and pinkish oranges, they show up. You can see them. You put minnows in a little pond, you just don't see them. So that's what makes them so cool for a display fish. But a lot of people use them for feeders, like uh, ribbon snakes eat them, and I'm going to have ribbon snakes in my aviary. So I might have to restock on occasion, but they'll feed my ribbon snakes. Uh, but they're just a cool fish. And again, like, you know, it's only two orders, mine and David's, but so far, they're batting a 1,000, man. If you can ship 2,000 fish and have one floater, you're doing pretty good. And check out Rosie reds for those little ponds we talked about, you know, a couple hundred uh, gallons or less, where it doesn't really make the sense to do full-size goldfish or something like that. They're just awesome. And then you've got a source of bait. They breed like crazy, um, and they're really, really hardy, and they're native North American, so they'll survive. I would say zone 6, maybe even zone 5, they should survive for you, as long as if you get ice on the top, there's enough Depth of water for them to have a, a place to uh, to hide, uh, but check them out. And if nothing else, you could always take some into a fish tank through your winters and repopulate because they breed so well in the spring. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. We're doing interesting covers week. Um, we're doing uh, Anthrax uh, is the is, well, actually, it's a Kansas song, "Carry On My Wayward Son," and Anthrax did a cover of that song. Now, it. It kind of occurred to me that some of y'all wouldn't really know much about a band like Anthrax. You'd have no idea who Anthrax was. You know, if you weren't like an 80s metalhead, you probably really wouldn't. And so, like, and they're still around, don't get me wrong. Anthrax is still around. Um, All those guys seem to still be around, except with the very few exceptions. Um, But what I thought I'd do is I would just play you a little bit of a typical Anthrax song, like 30 seconds, so you can hear, like, what Anthrax sounds like and then listen to their cover of Carry On. I think Kansas's rendition is better. Uh, John Adams' setup did as well, but it's pretty damn good, especially for Anthrax. So this is what a typical song by Anthrax would sound like. Nothing wrong with it, and I promise you music like that blared out of the 6x9 speakers in the back of my, my Pontiac Grand Prix LJ with the big four 400 small block and the Rochester Quadra Jet back in the day, right? Okay, so I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying, from a band that sounds like that, I don't think you would expect what you're about to hear. And with that, has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There'll be peace when you Lay we weary head to rest Don't you cry no more Confusion just to get a glimpse beyond the solution. I was soaring ever higher.